Hi, you're up front with Richard Niles. In this new Radio 2 series, I'll be telling the stories of some of the greatest singers of the 20th century and the big band leaders who made them famous. Most of us think of the big bands as a bunch of guys blowing their own horns in the swing era. And when we think of the great vocalists like Mel Torme, Peggy Lee, or Doris Day, we only know them for their later success as megastars. But over the next six Friday nights, I'll be showing you how these stars and more got their start, standing up front of the stage working for band leaders who saw their star potential before the public did. As a big band leader myself, I can tell you that whenever talented performers work together, there's a clash of egos. And it was the clash of the titans when the bespectacled, trombone-wielding Tommy Dorsey, leader of America's most popular band, hired a thin young man who would later be known as The Voice, the chairman of the board, and Old Blue Eyes. Night and day, you are the one. Only you beneath the moon and under the sun. Whether near to me or far, it's no matter, darling, where you are, I think of you. Day and night, night and day. The singer who had the most influence on everybody, including me, and I think he's the reason I became a songwriter, actually, was Frank Sinatra. We have to think of him as, you know, one of the greatest voices of the 20th century, someone who gives you a song as a gift. And that's what Sinatra did from his days with Dorsey until, you know, the day he died. They stopped dancing and used to walk up to the bandstand just to listen to him sing and to listen to those words and finally realized that they were dealing with poets. Day and night, night and fortunes of the Dorsey band became much better for Dorsey once Sinatra was there. And then, of course, as we know, the style of singing for which he became famous really was framed from the Tommy Dorsey trombone. They had a volatile personal relationship, but creatively, Sinatra and Dorsey were enormous influences on each other. There's no question about that. Sinatra said, I think Tommy taught me everything I know about singing. Sinatra used the same toothpaste Dorsey did, and I also found that he used the same cologne that Dorsey did. He had a very important effect in fact, Vince Falcone, who was his piano player off and on in the 70s into the 80s, said that Sinatra said to him one day, the two most important people in my life are my mother and Tommy Dorsey. Way down inside of me. Sinatra once said, working with a good band was the end of the rainbow for any singer. For Frank, it was only the beginning of an unparalleled career. For those of you who are under the age of 60, it's hard to imagine a world where big band music was pop music. But by the 40s, swing was king, and young people spent their days glued to the radio, and if they were lucky, spent their nights dancing to the biggest bands. 
Though band leaders were primarily selling the sound of five saxophones, four trumpets, four trombones, and a rhythm section, they were very aware that, apart from diehard jazz fans, audiences got bored unless the instrumentals were broken up by vocals. Band leaders also enjoyed the commercial rewards vocal recordings could bring. Here's Sinatra's biographer, Will Friedwald. The history of popular music in America is essentially, it can really be really reduced to the equation of the dance band era of the 30s and 40s leading into the uh, pop vocal era. There's a growing public acceptance of star vocalists and the way, uh, it's kind of ironic because the big bands are sort of you know feeding the flames of their own destruction because uh, all the, the major big bands are uh, supporting these star vocalists who will in you know the next few years or so replace them. Uh, at the beginning of the 40s Tommy Dorsey is more popular than Frank Sinatra. By the end of the 40s Frank Sinatra is more popular than Tommy Dorsey. He was a cusp figure in the 1940s. He's still functioning in the, as part of a unit in the big band, but he's pointing the way toward a new tradition. Music writer David Haydu. He came out of the 30s, which in the United States was defined by the Depression, and he came out of music that was part of a communal tradition, a group music, big band music. But he was a leader in the next wave of artists who were lone individuals and singing stars that I think were were part of a cultural change too and kind of in the post-war years uh, with the prosperity of the post-war years the American culture fell prey to a kind of confidence bordering on arrogance and uh, you know Sinatra had one foot in each of those traditions and you could hear him with Dorsey functioning well as part of an ensemble and he's part of that world and it's the world he grew up in but you hear him pointing the way toward a new kind of music too. Sinatra's first major gig was with trumpeter Harry James, whose wife had heard Sinatra on the radio and suggested they go hear him sing at the Rustic Cabin in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. James loved the voice but hated the name, suggesting he change it to Frankie Satin. Sinatra, utterly convinced even then that he was the greatest, said, you want the voice, you take the name. He signed a two-year contract with James, but when he learned six months later that Tommy Dorsey was going to be at the Rustic Cabin, Frank arranged to be guest singer, saying, once in my life I saw something that might happen and I tried to plant it, to sing with the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra. I wanted it in the worst way. Peter Levinson is writing a biography of Tommy Dorsey. They called Tommy the sentimental gentleman of swing. He was anything but sentimental, but he featured the singer. And when Sinatra joined the band, uh, he knew that this was the big time. Harry James was struggling at best when he was there. Dorsey had already become very established. And many years later, he referred to Tommy Dorsey as the general motors of the band business, which is exactly what he was. There was a, a band where he was very fond of the members individually. He had a great rivalry with Buddy Rich. They had a lot of fights because 
Essentially, Buddy Rich was the big star of the band, and a singer comes along and moves him out of the picture, and he didn't like that. But that's the way Buddy Rich was. And of course, Buddy Rich and Frank Sinatra had very similar personalities, and there was, Dorsey was not too far away from either of them. And to be the leader and to handle both of those, plus Connie Haynes and Ziggy Ellman and all those other people, that took a lot. But Tommy Dorsey was a man who was a born leader of men. He knew how to get what he wanted, and he was extremely demanding and a perfectionist. And uh, as Artie Shaw said, he demanded discipline and he got it, which is the best way to describe him. New York music journalist and author of Gil Evans' Out of the Cool, here's Stephanie Stein Kreese. It still amazes me when you listen to those early sides that he did with Sinatra, the things that really became super hits for him and also the Dorsey band. You know, it's like you hear this young man, you, you know, uh, very romantic, very vulnerable. I think Sinatra from early on had really discovered how to connect, you know, <laughs> with an audience and with the song. This is the beginning of the end just give yourself away with everything you say and though you never told me we must part still I can read the writing in your heart it was a softness it was an intimate quality that he had with Harry James of course there was the beginnings of a, of a sense of learning how to sing ballads with a softness with an intimate quality it developed even more so with Dorsey. I mean, the, with Dorsey, he really learned how to sing ballads. He also, uh, also learned from James a sense of how to sing some jazz, and that came into four with the Dorsey band, especially with soloists like uh, Don Lotus and, more importantly, Ziggy Ellman and Buddy Rich's drumming and so forth, so that he learned to sing in a kind of a quasi-jazz uh, singer style as well. I hear music when I look at you. The interpretation of the lyric is one thing, the vocal mastery is another, the ability of the breath to impart, to sing the lyrics in such a way that they become so meaningful and so uh, personal. So I think that's the Sinatra magic. I feel it start, then melt away. The tenderness is a key quality of Sinatra singing in those days. Dorsey said about Sinatra that what he did to women was something awful, <laughs> you know? And Sinatra had a way on, on stage, but more so in recordings and on the radio, of getting to the listener's heart. I hear it say, is this the day? Though the public would prefer to think an artist's talent is a magical gift, Sinatra worked hard to achieve it. 
He was one of the first singers to use the microphone as a musical instrument, saying, I use all the color changes I can get into my voice. The microphone catches the softest tone, a whisper. The deeply intimate conversational reading of a lyric, aided by a beautiful tone and a cello-like vibrato, simply overwhelmed audiences, who just plain forgot that, as Dorsey said, he was just a skinny kid with big ears. Sinatra wasn't the only singer in the Dorsey band. In fact, he made many appearances as part of the Pied Pipers, a smooth vocal group whose close harmonies sparkled with Dorsey. The Pied Pipers also featured the creamy voice of Joe Stafford, who, on first hearing Sinatra, said, After the first eight bars, I knew I was hearing something I'd never heard before. Walking Encyclopedia of Music and Musicians, Gene Lees. I always thought Frank blended into that group extremely well. Joe Stafford told me when she was with the Pied Pipers, Sinatra joined the band and this thin little young guy comes on and she says, we thought we were pretty good and we were sitting there with our arms folded uh, wondering how he was going to do and feeling pretty smug and she says, we heard about four bars and we knew he was going to be a major star. At the end of the set one night, a Dorsey called for uh, Violets for Your Furs, and it's a very slow uh, ballad. And Buddy Rich was really feeling very left out with the fans, and he started playing the tune loud with sticks instead of with brushes. And uh, Dorsey kind of gave him a look, but it didn't say anything. It was the end of the set. The band walked off the stage, and Joe Stafford went to a table, which was just below the stage, and she had written, started to write a letter just before the set saying, Dear Folks, and she started to write the first word is, I wanted to tell you about, and bang, Frank Sinatra picked up a water pitcher and threw it at Buddy Rich's head. She was standing right in front of where Sinatra was standing, and it hit against this wall, and the water came right down on the paper. So she was an eyewitness, and that all happened from his interpretation of Violets for Your Furs. I bought you violets for your furs And there was blue in the wintry sky You pinned my violets to your furs 
And gave a lift to the crowds passing by You smiled at me so sweetly Since then one thought occurs That we fell in love completely The day that I bought you violets for your fur Sinatra had a gargantuan ego and a legendary temper and it certainly affected his relationship with Tommy Dorsey, a strict taskmaster and perfectionist. But Frank often acknowledged the profound effect the trombonist musicianship had on him. Music writer David Haydew. Creatively, Sinatra and Dorsey were enormous influences on each other. There's no question about that. Sinatra said, I think Tommy taught me everything I know about singing. And what he meant was his breath control, which gave him the ability to control his phrasing and make a musical totality out of a song. He had a way that he derived from Dorsey of using very long, expressive lines. And beyond just the technical power of it, it gave his singing a, a sensuousness, a sinuousness. Uh, it seemed to kind of creep in at you and didn't sort of bark and snap at you the way that a lot of other singers' work did. Essentially, the style of Frank Sinatra is really based on long phrases, which he saw that Tommy Dorsey could play without seemingly taking a breath, and that's what Sinatra learned. And of course, then he used to do uh, a lot of breathing exercises and things like uh, working out at swimming pools, doing underwater swimming and that thing to build his chest cavity. That really had the uh, importance in, in what, what happened with his style in, in really uh, gaining the style of singing that he became famous for. The sunshine of your I think he spent a lot of time just studying Dorsey and Dorsey's sound and Dorsey's suaveness and Dorsey's urbanity. New York crooner Julius La Rosa. Everything there is to do and to know about singing, uh, he wrote a textbook and he discovered a word which uh, no popular singer had ever uh, elicited from any reviewer, and the word was phrasing. And essentially all that was, was uh, 
telling the story that the lyricist intended. Take me, I'm yours. If you'll take me, I want you to make me a part of your heart. The way that he wanted to make pop songs more intimate was to make his singing at one point he made it more musical and at the same time he made it more conversational. Rather than just being a bunch of words, he wanted to get to the meaning behind the words. To do that, he always gave credit to Dorsey because he said that normally he would not have enough breath control. I mean, you, the, the songs are pretty much written, or the way they were performed up until that point, was to breathe at the end of every line, no matter where, where it fell in the sentence. And Sinatra's idea was that you should end the sentence where the period is and where the thought ends rather than at the end of the line, because I had kind of an arbitrary feeling and made the song sound more artificial. Take me and never forsake me. My darling, please take me and make me own. Change was inevitable. Sinatra said, Tommy was a taskmaster and a brilliant musician, but I was earning $150 a week and saw no future. Sinatra was voted Billboard's top male vocalist of 1941, and the once invincible Tommy Dorsey realized that something had to give. He may well have been the general motors of bands, but now it was the skinny kid with big ears who was in the driving seat. Dorsey also knew that Sinatra was really becoming more and more important, and he did something which normally he wouldn't have allowed. He allowed Sinatra to record on his own, and that was at the point it was kind of getting to be the beginning of the end, because Sinatra was the leading band singer and becoming the big hit on his own. So he left, of course, at the uh, uh, month of September of 1942, and then Dorsey had a contract, and I must tell you that I have a copy of that contract, which nobody has ever seen, which shows that Sinatra indeed had signed a contract. I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places. Dorsey had a contract with Sinatra, which by all the reports I've read, and I read one just the other day, that he got a third of Sinatra's income. Uh, permanently for life. I find it very difficult to believe that Frank Sinatra was ever stupid enough to sign such a contract. There was quite a bit of uh, conflict between Dorsey and Sinatra over this issue of Sinatra's intended departure. Uh, the story has always been that Sinatra called upon uh, some friends of his uh, who were Italian and connected to the mob to persuade Dorsey to release him from the contract. That may or may not be apocryphal, but it seems credible to me. And when the night is new, I'll be looking at the moon, but I'll be seeing you. Sometimes I wonder why I spend the long 
Dorsey did sue him, and eventually it was settled out of court, and he did collect $62,000 from him. Theoretically, Dorsey was right because he had a signed contract. I mean, it's, it's his signature. It's no question about that. But uh, he resented him, and yet uh, the old story of when money comes into it, things change. And they, they did each other's radio shows in, in 1944 and 5, and then they appeared in Las Vegas in 1947, and again in 1955 on Dorsey's, it wasn't actually his 20th year, but in February of 1955, and the 20th anniversary wasn't until the fall of 55, but Sinatra came over to this celebration on this radio show, and he sat in and sang three songs with him. And then in the uh, summer of 1956, they worked the Paramount Theater together. Uh, they worked about four days, and then Sinatra took ill, and they never finished the week together. The Dorsey Band finished, and of course, Tommy and Jimmy were back together at that time. And then Sinatra did not work on the memorial show that uh, Jackie Gleason put together. He said, uh, I didn't like him when, I was, when he was alive, and it would be hypocritical to go on a memorial show. Yet, when they were together in, in August, they had gotten along perfectly well. So one could never really figure out Frank Sinatra in life. How are we going to figure him out in death? My stardust melody, the memory of love's Even beyond the grave, Tommy Dorsey must be kicking himself that he came out of one of the most celebrated artistic collaborations of all time with a mere $62,000. By the end of World War II, the big bands were on their way out, and Dorsey's career dwindled. But, as most human beings on this planet know, Sinatra had only just begun as a superstar actor, singer, and hit maker. His career was like a rocket, but I hope tonight has let you see the launching pad where he developed his style and technique standing up front with Tommy Dorsey. Thanks to all of tonight's Pied Pipers, Will Friedwald, Peter Levinson, David Haydu, Stephanie stein Kreese, Jean Lees, and Julius LaRosa, and Violets for the Furs of my producer, Elizabeth Clark. Radio Richard. Like, share, subscribe, even donate. Radio Richard. Be informed. Be amazed, be inspired.